the Winter Olympics, haven't they been enthralling to watch? We've had Zoe Sadowski Sinnott and Nico Porteous, homegrown talent. We can claim them, can't we? Wanaka's close enough to Cromwell for them to be homegrown. Hasn't it been fabulous to watch their uh, wonderful achievements? And one of the events that TV ratings rank as highest through all the Olympic Winter Olympics tends to be ice skating. It's very popular, isn't it? Even for those that are, are not keen winter sports people. Though this year it has not been without its controversy, hasn't it? And it's been quite a surprise, certainly to me, that given the recent history that a Russian ice skater tested positive for a banned substance. And though I don't want to comment on this particular case, the intense rivalry and desire to win at any cost can bring out the ugly side of sport. Take another infamous ice skating controversy that happened in the 90s. Do you know the name Tonya Harding, the skater? In the early 1990s, Tonya Harding, who's on the left in that picture there, and Nancy Kerrigan, who's on the right, were top contenders for making the USA ice skating team for the 1994 Winter Olympics. Both trained hard and both were very good, though Nancy had the edge. However, just a few months out before the Olympics and on the eve of a major qualifying competition, there was tragedy. As uh, Nancy was making her way off the ice and towards the changing room, a stranger came up with a baton and smashed her knee. It left her injured and inconsolable. Tonya Harding went on to win that competition and qualify for the Olympic squad. Though devastated, Nancy was able to recover in time, qualify, and went on to win a silver medal at the Winter Olympics while Tonya was placed eighth, and there she is on the left with her silver medal. Meanwhile, police investigations continued until they identified and charged Nancy's attacker. However, to everyone's surprise, it turned out that Tonya Harden's ex-husband had set up the attack and that Tonya Harden was complicit. She knew what was going to happen. Subsequently, she was stripped of her US titles and banned from competitive ice skating for life. Jealousy, rivalry, the desire to be number one at any cost, what we'll call selfish ambition, can turn very, very ugly. And I'm so pleased we do not have selfish ambition in the church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray that, the, that you will open our hearts and minds to what Jesus has to say for us this morning. Through his name we pray, amen. Selfish ambition, rivalry, jealousy, desire to be number one, does it occur in the church? <laughs> Sadly, disappointingly, unfortunately, selfish ambition can occur in the church, as it did amongst the disciples of Jesus, as we'll see in today's passage. However, as we look sadly at the disciples and their selfish ambition, we'll also see Jesus respond in a way that we can put into practice so that selfish ambition will not take root in our personal lives or within this church. So let's begin with a brief recap from last message in Mark a couple of weeks ago, maybe three. Ryan preached 
about Jesus putting the little children on his knee and asking the disciples to welcome them. The context we will pick up there. So what's happened is that Jesus and the disciples have been on the road ministering. They return to their home base, which is Capernaum. And you can imagine, as they're unpacking their bags, we pick this story up here, Mark 9, 33 and 34. Jesus said, what were you arguing about on the way, on the road? But they kept quiet because they had been arguing on who was the greatest. Goodness me, selfish ambition. Arguing over who's number one, who's the best, who's the head honcho. Though things had not turned ugly yet, they certainly would if left unchecked. So Jesus wastes no time in nipping this in the bud. And so verse 35, sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, Anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. And that's when he takes a child and pops that child on his knee and indicates that not only must they be a servant to all, but they must welcome such as a little child. And when they do, they are welcoming him. They welcome the vulnerable. And so when it comes to selfish ambition in our own lives, we have an early take-home two early take-homes. To stop selfish ambition, rivalry, wanting to be number one, taking root in our life, we must serve the one that we are jealous of, that we are worried about. It would be like Tonya Harding saying, can I sharpen your skates? Can I help you be a better skater? That would have stopped Tonya Harding and the mess she got herself into with Nancy Kerrigan. And that's what Jesus is saying here. If you feel that there is selfish ambition, jealousy, rival, ta- rivalry taking root in your life, serve the person that you feel jealous to. And, of course, the rest of the church. Serve. Welcome the vulnerable, like the little children, and that will stop that bitter root growing, destroying your life. So that's the first take home. Now you'd think the disciples would be humbled by being caught out by Jesus about arguing over who was the greatest. But no, in their next breath, we see that selfish ambition is continuing, though with a twist. And that brings us with today's passage. And we pick this up in verse 38. Teacher said, John, we saw someone driving out demons in your name. We told him to stop because he was not one of us. He was not one of us. So what's happening here? Well, this time, John's selfish ambition is not for himself, but it's for his group, their little church, their tribe. Can you see what's different? He's not just selfish for himself, but he wants his group to be number one. He's saying, okay, Jesus, we get your point. We won't argue over who's the greatest, though it's probably me, isn't it, Jesus? (laughs) But surely our group is the best. Surely our group of 12 plus you is unbeatable. We're number one. And so selfish ambition moves from the individual to the group. Our tribe's the best and we'll set anyone straight who thinks otherwise. Now before we consider Jesus' response, let's just have a think about who the disciples were complaining about and their disciples, what this reveals about the disciples. So we're not told about the person that upset the disciples so much. We're not told a lot, but we are told three things. The person who the disciples told to stop was casting out demons, was successful, and was doing it in Jesus' name. Three things. 
that person who the disciples said, stop, was casting out demons, was successful at it, and did it in Jesus' name. And that must have rankled the disciples, because at the beginning of chapter 9, what happens? Jesus comes off the mountain to find chaos among the crowd, because a father with a demon-possessed boy had brought that boy to the disciples, and what could the disciples do? Nothing. They were impotent. And then Jesus comes and scolds them publicly, casts out the demons. And then they hear of this person who is doing what they couldn't do, casting out demons in Jesus' name. So you can see how it had annoyed them no end. They had given everything up to follow Jesus. They had been Jesus' right-hand men. Who was this upstart to be more successful than them? He must stop and stop now. Jealousy and rivalry, wanting to be number one, and it's not pretty. Now, there's a similar incident in the Old Testament that we had read today by Alexa, and it's the incident is found in Numbers. Let me set the scene. We need to sort of, uh, sort of historically shift a couple of thousand years from Jesus' day right back to Moses' day, where Moses and the Israelites are spending 40 years in the wilderness. Now, as they're traveling along, God decides Moses has under too much pressure and he needs to raise up some more leaders. So he says to Moses, here's a list of 70 names, 70 elders. I want you to call them to the tabernacle, to the tent place of worship, and I will commission them. And so as the 70 gather, the Holy Spirit falls and they start to prophesy. We're talking prophesy, we're talking miracles here. However, two of the 70 are still in their tents. And they start to prophesy as well, even though they're not part of the group. So we pick up the story in Numbers chapter 11 from 27. A young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and me, Dad, are prophesying in the camp. There's always a snitch, isn't there? Always a snitch. Anyway, Joshua, son of Nun, who had been Moses' aide since youth, spoke up and said, Moses, my Lord, stop them. But Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? I wish that all the Lord's people were prophets and the Lord will put his spirit on them. Moses replied, Are you jealous for my sake? Notice how it's very similar to the case with Jesus and the disciples. And Moses is very insightful because he points out to Joshua, You're jealous. You may think you're jealous for me, but you're actually jealous for you because you want to be part of the in-group. And when your in-group is on the outside, you want to change it. Selfish ambition, creeping in, taking hold, biting deep. And Moses puts the young Joshua, the young man, in his place. It's not my reputation, Joshua, nor yours, nor the groups that is important, but honouring God. I pray that God will be honoured by all people, not just those that are here in the tabernacle. And so this speaks into what is happening back in Jesus' day, back in Mark. And so if we pick up Jesus' response now with that numbers story in the back of our mind. So what's Jesus is going to say after John rather proudly said that they had told this person to stop casting out demons in his name? How does Jesus respond? Verse 39. Do not stop him, Jesus said. For no one who does a miracle in my name can in the next moment say anything bad about me. For whoever is not against us 
is for us. Truly I tell you, anyone who gives you a cup of water in my name because you belong to the Messiah will certainly not lose his reward. Just like Moses, Jesus says, no, don't tell the person to stop. For whoever is not against us is for us. So what's Jesus saying here? Well, he's saying that anyone who claims to be his follower must be received or welcomed until there is a clear reason to think otherwise. I'll say this again. Unless there is a clear reason to think otherwise, anyone serving in Jesus' name is to be received. And this is reinforced by Jesus saying even a stranger offering the disciples a mere cup of water in Jesus' name, well, they will be rewarded. And so this is the gist of what Jesus is saying. But we can dig a little bit deeper into this response and find some really important principles for us. You see, this passage helps us to work out who is for us and who is against us, who are true Christians and who are not. All through the ages, from the early church to now, there have been people who have claimed to be Christians and who are not, sadly. And so how do we know? Well, the criteria, the biblical criteria, is it's all about Jesus. For if someone is serving in Jesus' name, whether dramatically casting out demons or giving a cup of water, they are to be welcomed and encouraged and not told to stop and go away. If someone comes up here claiming to be a Christian and then asks for money, well, that's a little bit obvious, isn't it, really? That needs to be significantly tested. A lot, because <laughs> we're Presbyterians. But you know what I mean. But if someone is quietly serving Jesus, either by offering cups of water or miracles in Jesus' name, then our default is to accept and welcome them until told otherwise. You see, what counts is not whether we belong to a particular denomination or to a particular local church. What counts is whether we are serving each other in Jesus' name, whether we are welcoming the children and the vulnerable in Jesus' names, or whether we're doing miracles or offering cups of water in Jesus' name. This is the benchmark for what it is to be a follower of Jesus. You can wear a big badge that says, I'm a Presbyterian, and that doesn't mean anything unless you're following and serving Jesus. It's the first thing we learn. The second thing we learn from Jesus' response is that no one can ever be neutral about Jesus. Whoever is not against him is for him. Now, do you see how that rules out any neutrality towards him? Whoever is not against Jesus, actively against Jesus, must be for Jesus. Jesus is either our Lord or we are against him. Jesus is either our friend or he is our enemy. He is either the desire of our heart or the disdain of our soul. There is no sitting on the fence with Jesus. There is no middle ground. There is no, let me just pause and think about it and I'll get back to you. Because the middle ground, the pausing, the sitting on the fence is actually a vote against Jesus. You're either actively for Christ or if you're passively not anywhere, then you are against him. You see, neutrality has been tried and it's failed. Remember Pilate. Pilate tried with all his heart to be neutral. And what happened? He ended up crucifying Jesus. If anyone here 
tries to be neutral about Jesus, you are in fact crucifying him. If you were to die tonight, there's two options. You would either reach the judgment seat where you would be counted as a friend of God because you are committed to Jesus. Or you would be an enemy of God because you weren't committed to Jesus. But the fires of hell licking about your heels and the hair on your head singed. There is no middle ground. Jesus' word tells us there is no middle ground. And this is serious eternal implications for each one of us in this room and each one of us that are listening. Next week, Jesus starts to talk about hell and then we'll get serious. But I get ahead of myself. Let's start thinking about some take-homes. How can we put this into practice? Well, one of the ways of not allowing selfish ambition to creep into the church is to be intentional about serving Jesus with other churches, with other Christian groups. Instead of comparing ourselves with the local Baptist church, Catholic church, Pentecostal church, getting annoyed when they do well and quietly being smug when they struggle, instead of that, we look for opportunities to serve Jesus with other Christians in our community. And so there's a number of ways we do that. For instance, coming up in a month, month and a half or so, we have Good Friday and the Walk of the Cross in every Yeah, one of the local Conwell churches organises that and we walk through the town and then we finish with a small worship service wherever the church who's leading it decides. What a wonderful way to witness together and worship together. We look for those opportunities. Another couple of things we do is the um, Know Your Bible conference that we host once a year, September, November, in which uh, all of the Christians who are associated with Know Your Bible, all the Christian women or any Christian woman from Central can come and enjoy the conference. Just got notification this week of the International Prayer Day that the Catholic Church is hosting. We hosted it last year, and that's coming up in March, and there's some information in your newsletter, another chance to worship and witness together. And then, of course, we have uh, the Hope Project, which Cromwell did for the first time last year. Uh, And I'll be looking for volunteers starting from next week. What do we do there? Well, in conjunction with a New Zealand-wide TV campaign, then um, gather the local churches together and we divide up the streets and we drop these wonderful Christian booklets into people's houses. So what we're doing there is we're making sure that we aren't, as Cromwell Presbyterian Church, in a silo where we think we're the best and the rest of the Christians in the town are second best or third best. No, no, no. We actively work against that type of selfish ambition and look for positive opportunities to work alongside other brothers and sisters in Christ. Some practical things that we can work at as a church. Now, I just want to briefly tie all this together. Each one of us is susceptible to selfish ambition, either within ourselves or as a group. To stop it taking root in ourselves, we need to look for ways of serving the person or people that we're jealous about. That's tough. You can't do that by yourself. You need God's help. The other thing we do to stop it growing in ourselves is to welcome those that are vulnerable, where we can encourage and support them. As a church... To stop selfish ambition digging in, then we look for ways that we can serve, witness and worship with other Christians. Because selfish ambition, when it takes root, 
can be very, very, very ugly, as it was with Tonya Harding, who allowed jealousy and rivalry and wanting to be number one cloud her judgment and being complicit to the shattering of a competitor's knee. Jesus' teaching is clear. Instead of being jealous and envious and resentful with fellow Christians, we are to serve each other, welcome the vulnerable, and giving all who serve in Jesus' name the benefit of the doubt. For though some have a ministry in miracles, each one of us can offer a cup of water to someone who is thirsty in Jesus' name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, each one of us wants to acknowledge that selfish ambition, the wanting to be number one, the centre of attention, Lord, can rise up within us. We confess, Lord, that that's a weakness. And we ask that by your Spirit you will transform us, Lord, so that we can serve others, in particular those we may be jealous of, welcome the vulnerable, and look for opportunities to serve you shoulder to shoulder with other people who want to honour Jesus' name. We ask this through Christ our Lord. Amen.